And we're live. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, we're going to let our guest, Mr. J. Manfred Weichelsel. I probably should have asked you how to say that last name. It's, uh, uh, it's, uh, I got it J- wrong last time, too. It's uh, J. Manfred Weichsel. Weichsel. All right. So can you, int- can you introduce yourself to our uh, viewers and listeners? Well, let's see. My name is uh, J. Manfred Weichsel. What? I'm sorry? Uh, my can name you introduce is- yourself to... Absolutely. Um, my name is Jay Manfred Weixel, and I write a lot of different stuff. I write uh, science fiction, horror, adventure. Um, all my books are funny. Um, they all have a satirical bent, and that's really the thing that unifies all my books, is that they have an element of satire in them. Um my two most recent books, my last one was Warrior Soul and Other Stories. It's a collection of 12 stories. Five of them originally appeared in Kursova magazine. Uh, two of them appeared in the Planetary Anthology series from Superversive Press and Tuscany Bay Press. Um, it's got 12 amazing stories. And right before that, in February of this year, I published Savage Headhunters. It's a World War II horror story set in the Pacific theater of World War II. It's got Franklin Roosevelt. It's got uh, Hirohito. It's got Tojo. It's got all, all the historical figures. And it takes place on Guadalcanal. It's about the Battle of uh, Guadalcanal. Uh, so it's it's an awesome book, too. Uh, I, I publish a lot of really cool, really just fantastic, far out, uh, funny, disturbing, weird, action packed books. All right. And the next part of the introduction, dear listeners, how we found them. So this one came to us from the one, the only Mr. Declan fan who introduced me when I had an open call over the summer because we had a string of cancellations. Sick kids will do that to you. And I needed some people to fill the the holes rather quickly. And Declan put one call out on Twitter, and he says, uh, we've got about 100 people who said they'd come on the show. And I'm like, uh, I don't think I can do that many in a week. So but uh, so we, he sent us a lot of a lot of guests. But uh, now, sir, to the religion question. Since you've been on the show before, I think you were episode 189, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. Um, so we're going to mix this up just a little bit. So Stargate, Lost in Space, or Warehouse 13? Gosh, you know, that's a really tough question because um, Stargate SG-1 and Lost in Space are both shows that kind of took me through different difficult times in my life. Just, uh, you know, you have a hard time, you know, you come home from work and, you know, you need an episode of something, you need to watch something that, that you love, that, that'll be familiar and that'll take you away from, from the grind that you just came from. And both of those shows in different part times in my life <clears throat> filled uh, that void. So um, Warehouse 13, I, I don't know what that is. So that's an easy one to scratch off the list. But Stargate SG-1 and, and Lost in Space, I, I don't know if I could uh, choose between those two because they're just uh, both really wonderful shows uh, for, for very different reasons. Okay. So because we're polytheistic, Willow, Beastmaster, or Conan the Barbarian? Oh, 
Wow. Uh, you mean the movies, not the, because uh, Beastmaster is also a novel by Andre Norton, and everybody knows uh, Conan is, is Robert E. Howard. Um, but as far as the movies Beastmaster and Conan go, you know, they're both fantastic films. Um, Beastmaster has more of that kind of campy appeal to it. While you know Conan is just a marvelous, um, epic, grand uh, film, um, so I'm going to say I have to I have to go with Conan. Um, Willow is, is a good movie. Um, you know I know it, it tanked when it came out and it almost ruined uh, George Lucas's career. It kind of knocked that uh, you know shine off of him a little bit, uh, knocked him down a little bit in terms of prestige. But uh, you know it's a solid movie. But uh, I'd say uh, Conan is one of the greatest ever made. Beastmaster is a whole lot of fun. Um, uh, there's the uh, Little scene at the end of Beastmaster, it's kind of, you might miss it, but the villain is like standing right by the edge of the volcano or whatever, the chasm, and the ferret dives at the villain and tackles him and knocks him over the edge in, into the um, lava and sacrifices himself to kill the villain and save everybody. And I think that's really beautiful with, with, the, with the little ferret. But uh, Conan, of course, is, is just uh, 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 an amazing just movie, I don't think. I mean, they won't ever make a movie like either of them, but uh, I'd, I'd have to say Conan is uh, the, the better one. Um, you know, and uh, too, I, I love Robert E. Howard. Um, I love Andre Norton, too. Um, but, you know, they're good for different reasons. Howard is really majestic uh, in, in his writing. Um, you know, he, he just is, is amazing. Well, Andre Norton is a little cheesier, but, you know, still a lot of fun, um, but, you know, just doesn't often reach the same heights that, uh, you know, Robert E. Howard, Howard does. So the reason we picked the ones we we did is because all of them have novelizations. So I don't know if the novels came first in Willow, for instance, but it's the Chronicles of the Shadow War series. I think book one is Shadow Moon, if I'm not mistaken. But that's a that's a novelization as well. In fact, George Lucas has a novel title credit on that one. So probably movie came first, but they're all novels as well. Or in Conan's case, there's also a bunch of comics. Yeah. Uh, did you know that there was a novelization? Interesting. Did you know there was a novelization of King Kong? I did not. Was the right novel after, after, or did it come? Came out right after cool. the movie. It was based on the screenplay. It came out like a year after the movie, or maybe even less. That's pretty awesome. Uh, there's also a trilogy so, of novelizations of Godzilla, written in Japanese, um, that have not, not had a professional translation into English, but they're going to come for the first time, I think, later this year or next year. Okay, so moving on to, uh, to talking about you as the nerd. So we here at the Blasters and Blues. The nerd, me? <laughs> what was your first love, sci-fi or fantasy? Oh, science fiction, definitely. Um, 
Yeah, uh, I, I felt because when I when I think, you know, a lot of kids are like this, like um, people think that children are going to respond to fantasy more than they do science fiction. But kids, their imaginations really stimulated by hard science fiction, by like visions of the future where they're extrapolated from the present, where it's it's a real what if uh, question about the future. Just, you know, that, that's the way kids are. They, they are thinking a lot about the future. They're, what's the world going to be like when I grow up? Um, what's it going to be like when I'm an adult? And, uh, <clears throat> you know, books that, that make a, a serious effort to, to predict the future really appeal to kids. So like a lot of old Asimov, like the Foundation series, like that's a great series for kids. Like I know some uh, kids now, eight, nine years old, who, who just are crazy about that series. Um, a lot of uh, Heinlein's juveniles, especially the ones that have to do with space exploration, uh, you know, kids love those. Um, you know, the early Dune books are great for kids too. Um, but yeah, definitely uh, science fiction. And I think, you know, that was true when I was a kid and from what I can see, it's true now. Like, like I try to show the kids fantasy um, you know, that I know, and they won't, they, they're not interested in that, um, because that, that's something that can never be, but, uh, the, uh, I think fantasy, people think it appeals to kids, but it, it's really for older people, um, you know, you have to be a grown-up to really appreciate the kind of metaphysical thought that, uh, go, goes into a really great fantasy. Okay. So what was your first uh, discovery of science fiction? Do you remember what, what uh, property, via movie, board game, video game, whatever? Absolutely. Um, I was uh, at an aerospace museum, and um, we were at the gift shop. And I was looking around the gift shop, and there were, uh, you know, some of the old Heinlein juveniles. Um, and I looked them up, and I, I looked at them. I looked at the back cover, and uh, it was either Starman Jones or, or Rocket Ship Galileo. Uh, I don't really remember which one, but, uh, you know, something about it, just the cover art and the description on the back really kind of caught me. And I picked it up, and I started reading it. And, uh, you know, I just kind of fell in love. Um, later on, um, I discovered Analog, uh, Science Fiction and Fact, uh, you know, that magazine, um, just uh, waiting online at the supermarket with my parents later. And, um, you know, so I started buying that. And I used to read the Writers of the Future books, uh, that collection when it came out too. And from that, it just kind of spiraled. Um, I learned about like the Hugo Awards and the Nebula Awards. And, um, you know, this is like the 80s before, uh, you know, um, before they, when, they, when they, they, they still have some prestige to them. Um, I guess I don't want to say, but uh, I learned about those. And like, I was just like in awe that there was people that were writing books and winning awards and being a member of an organization called SFWA. Um, and because uh, growing up where I did and in the kind of place I did, like just the idea that there were people writing books was something very foreign to me. And it was a very, it was an idea that um, was kind of, outside of, of the world that, that I was a part of and I was interested in it and I wanted to learn about it. And I kind of decided that, uh, you know, I mean, I had these, I had decided that people who write books were these like 
fab fantastic like larger than life like godlike figures who were creating the, these worlds and um i was really in awe just of the idea that there could be something called an author and somebody who who wrote these books i didn't quite understand um how, how they did it but I, I was just really very much in awe of that whole idea Okay. So what is it about speculative fiction, the sort of umbrella of all things that you love so much? You know, <clears throat> I love the imagination. I love the, the imaginativeness of it and uh, all of the different worlds uh, that, that you can explore. Um, my my these aren't going to be very popular answers but uh i really like the social commentary like a lot of heinlein you know i read heinlein and he just uh you know th there's a part in any heinlein novel almost any where he just stops writing the book and just starts ranting about whatever he saw in the newspaper that morning that made him angry and uh that can be fascinating because, you know, you really do have a snapshot of, of this guy who, you know, he read the newspaper, he started, he started writing a book, he just, in the middle of the book, just started ranting about what he saw in the newspaper, and, and it made him really angry. And, uh, you know, j just the kind of snapshot that you get of the time that any author lived in is really fascinating to me. And this is just as much true about classic authors as it is science fiction. Like, I love uh, to read a lot of uh, classics. And when I do, um, it's often, for me, uh, a gateway into learning about the history of when those authors lived. So I went through a phase when I was reading a lot of Victorian literature, and I learned about the Boer Wars and the Sulu Wars in Africa just from reading H. Ryder Haggard novels, um, for example. Um, but, you know, even going back further, um, you know, I read a lot of uh, just classic literature from, from the ancient world. Um, like everything I know about the uh, Malapalasian War, I learned from Aristophanes, uh, for, for example. Um, so, uh, you know, I mean, I, I've never read a history of the Penelopolesian War, but I know a little bit about it. I know who Cleon was and, uh, you know, all, all of that just from uh, reading, um, you know, the old satires about the war. So I think uh, fiction in general is a great way to learn about the past and science fiction from the 50s, 60s, 70s is a really great way to learn about um, mid 20th century American culture and just, you know, how people thought then and what their hopes and dreams were and what their fears for the future were. And, um, you know, you know, j just uh, all, all of that, what, the, what their attitudes about various things were. And, you know, they're very fascinating people, the, the mid-20th mid century uh, Americans. Uh, they were very industrious. What's that? I didn't say anything. I was listening to you. 
they, they were very industrious uh, people and, uh, you know, they, they were very optimistic and had a lot of hope for the future, uh, but they also had a lot of fears about the future and what kind of technology the future was going to bring. And a lot of their fears, if we listen to them now, we'd be in a much better place than we are because, you know, a lot of them uh, really, I mean, it was just spot on. Like um, if you read um, Alfred Bester of The Demolished Man, a lot of people consider that novel the first cyberpunk novel. It was written in the 60s and it doesn't have a computer in the entire book. It's about psychics. But when you see the scenes of the psychics together and they're communicating psychically uh, one mind to the other, it really does sound a lot like uh, an internet uh you know, social media site like Twitter or a chat room or, or some sort of board where everybody's just kind of talking and talking over one another and getting little snippets of what one person says and another person says. So although like Bester didn't like predict the computer, he predicted the state that we'd be living in in the future. And that's really fascinating and, and really prescient um, in a way that perhaps Bester didn't know about. And maybe my work is going to be prescient in a way that I don't know about, that, that I'm not aware of right now, but somebody in the future, uh, 70 years from now, 60 years from now, is going to read one of my books and wow, how did he know that? How did he, how did he know it was going to look like that? And, uh, <clears throat> you know, that, that's just because, um, um, you know, I'm thinking about those things and trying to, to look at them. Um, part of it also, if I'm going to be a little bit cynical, might just have to be if you write a lot of nonsense, eventually some of it will come true. Um, you know, there's a Victorian era children's series that's kind of an Alice Wonderland ripoff. But the character, the main character's name is Baron Trump, which is Donald Trump's kid. So... You know, he, people on the internet think that guy predicted the future, but you know he didn't. It's just a coincidence. He was writing a lot of a lot of nonsense poetry, and uh, some of it sounds like something today. So uh, that's my answer. So, how did your love of the reading all things speculative fiction transition into you deciding to write your stories? Hmm. Well. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I, I was really very bookish, and I'm still bookish as an adult. Um, I guess uh, it's kind of gone on and off. Um, I've had periods in my life where I didn't read at all, and periods in my life where I read very heavily. Um, you know, right now I'm, I'm reading a lot. Um, you know, of, of different stuff. Every and you know, I read everything from. I love classic satire. I love Rabelais and Jonathan Swift and, and Lawrence Stern. Um, Tristram Shandy is just a fantastic book. And, you know, I always wanted to be a writer. Um, but, you know, and, and I always dabbled in it. You know, I'm, I'm pretty old. I was, I'm uh, in my mid-40s now. And um, <clears throat> throughout my life, there were just periods where I just wanted to drop everything I was supposed to be doing and start to write. But the problem was that I had, I had responsibilities that kept on calling me back and calling me away from writing. You know, I have to make money. I've got to pay the rent. I've got, you know, you got to work the job and you got to do this and that. Um, so, you know, I get into it. I would do it. I would get 
pulled away, I'd get into it again, I'd do it again, I'd pull away. And I was, I was living in LA trying to just, you know, become a screenwriter. And I don't really know what I was doing there. Um, just kind of learning from uh, making mistakes in life, I guess, uh, you know, growing and, and, and changing. So, you know, uh, I was I was there and then, you know, the, the pandemic hit and, um, you know, I kind of lost my job and moved back to East Coast to uh, New Jersey. And, uh, you know, and, and by that time I was publishing a lot. I was publishing in Kursova and I was writing short stories and, you know, submitting them. But, you know, at that time I said, you know what, I want to focus on long fiction. I want to learn how to self-publish and I want to just focus on, on doing this. It's been my dream my whole life and I've always dabbled in it. And even in a way like what I was doing with the short fiction uh, was I was learning how to write. I was learning how to tell a story and, you know, how to write a, a good sentence and how to construct a, a paragraph and how to develop a character and a world and, um, you know, all that. So I, I was definitely learning. But at the same time, I, you know, it was time for me to uh, take the leap to the next step. So the, and and it would have been time regardless of whether everything shut down. But everything shutting down is what gave me the opportunity to really hone my skills, start writing longer stuff and learning how to self-publish. And I looked at what was going on in, in March of 2020 when everybody was scared and freaking out. And I said, this is the greatest opportunity I've ever had in my life. I have no responsibilities. I'm being taken care of by, uh, you know, checks from, from, from the government, bigger than, than what I was making before. Um, I don't have all these extra expenses with commuting and traveling to work and parking and buying lunch and, and all of that. You know, I can really just sit down and focus on what I've always wanted to do. So I, I took that opportunity and and then I sat down and, and I started working on Ibu Gogo, which was uh, based on something I, I'd written earlier and kind of finished and then not finished and then finished and then not finished. And, you know, I, I tried to write it before I really knew how to write. But now I knew how to write because I'd had years of practice uh, having short stories published. So I sat down, I started working on Ibu Gogo, set it up, uh, you know, uh, got a great cover artist, got a great cover. And, uh, you know, I published that sucker and uh, people just loved it. You know, it was, it's a funny book. It's satirical. Uh, it, you know, pokes fun at a lot of things that uh, are going on and today and, and in 2020 when I wrote it. And, um, you know, it's just a really fun, exciting book. It's about cryptozoologists, and they're in the jungle, and they're in Indonesia, and there's a husband and wife. They're ex-wife, I mean. Uh, and they're both searching for these little cryptids called Ibu Gogo. They're these um, little tiny people who are rumored to live on the island of Flores in Indonesia. Um, scientists discovered these little fossilized hominids, these miniature people uh, called Homo floresiensis, which many believe 
are the Ibu Gogo from Indonesian legends. So I took the Indonesian legends, I took all the scientific, uh, you know, research, and I really studied evolution. I read like all the Smithsonian articles and the National Geographic articles to trace like human evolution from, uh, you know, like the, the Neanderthals, uh, Homo erectus, uh, to uh, Homo habilis and um, you know, all the different species and how they interacted with each other uh, way back when before there was Homo, Homo sapiens and to write the backstory for how the Ibu Gogo could have come to be and could have gotten to uh, Indonesia. And I wrote this like really wild uh, jungle adventure novel with a lot of sex, a lot of nudity, a lot of violence and gore, a lot of action, a lot of running through the jungle. Um, and I just wrote like a really fun novel and people, people just really dug it. And, um, <clears throat> you know, so after that, took another old story of mine. Um, it was called, it was originally called Alter Ego, but I changed the name to Five Maidens on a Pentagram, <clears throat> completely rewrote it, finished it, um, you know, turned it into another novel, uh, published it. That one's Five Maidens on the Pentagram. It's a gothic horror sex farce about a guy with disassociative identity disorder, and he's in a mental hospital. Usually he's just a completely normal guy, but when he gets scared, he turns into his evil alter ego, Maldeus. But his name's Jonah, and Jonah learns that his doctor, Dr. Strand, is actually an evil wizard named Hasatan, who's working with uh, his alter ego, Maldeus, to sacrifice women to a demon on a giant pentagram in the basement of the hospital. So... He's a mental patient. No one will believe him that his doctor is a Satan worshiper. So what he does is he goes undercover pretending to be his alter ego in order to uncover his doctor's evil plan. And uh, so that, that was my second book. Um, my I've got 10 books out. I could describe them all uh, right now. Um, but uh, after that was uh, Jungle Jitters, uh, which is really a satire of my time in Hollywood. Um, but it is also about, uh, if you know, do you know who Ilya Ivanov Ivanovich is? I do not. Well, he was a Russian mad scientist who really was a real person who tried to mate human beings with apes in order to create a hybrid species of human apes. And, uh, you know, this was funded by the Soviet government. And he actually traveled to France and then to uh, French colonial Africa <clears throat> in order to mate humans with apes. He was kicked out of French colonial Africa. They were like, yo, you can't do that. That's like wrong. They send him back to Russia, but they let him bring a bunch of chimpanzees with him. Uh, they all die on the way to Russia. He winds back in Russia and he's, he's now like a pariah and he gets exiled to Afghanistan where he spends his last remaining years. So I wrote a, a story imagining that he survived and started a cult in the middle of the Congo uh, um, where the people for spiritual reasons are trying to mate humans with apes in order to create a hybrid species uh, to fulfill uh, their, 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 their twisted dreams for humanity's future. And so they lure Hollywood uh, 
ingenues, uh, wannabe movie stars to the Congo under the guise that they're going to shoot a movie there, a jungle adventure show or whatever. They do this for a hundred years um, until finally uh, they lure our three heroines, the action girls. They have a little YouTube show called the action girls to the Congo and uh, jungle adventure. Hilarity ensues. There's a lot of, there's a lot of gore. There's a lot of, um, um, you can see on YouTube, but there's a lot of non-consensual sexual activity without, between uh, human females and simians. Uh, there's uh, weird scenes of artificial insemination. There's uh, human-chimp hybrids. There's mad scientists with uh, turkey basters. You name it. It's a crazy uh, jungle adventure. It's probably my most controversial book. Uh, some people love it. Uh, and it gets great reviews. Other people, it just pisses them off. And they, they, they just, they, they write very angry things. And so that, that's a most controversial book. And, uh, you know, after that is uh, Not Far From Eden, which is based on the apocryphal books of Enoch and Jubilees. It's about the story of the Watchers, angels who uh, are sent to earth by God to educate humans, but instead they, they mate with uh, the human women. They find them very attractive and create giant beings called Nephilim, which uh, God eventually floods the earth in order to destroy. Then I wrote The Caledonian Boar Hunt. We discussed that in issue 189, in episode 189. So I don't need to get into that because I spoke about it at great length with you. Um, and then after the Caledonian boar hunt, Planet of the Wage Slaves, a little satire with, uh, about horrible jobs I've had. Uh, it's very anti if you're into the whole uh, anti-work thing. And then uh, after that was um, Savage Headhunters, which is the third book in my Tales to Make You Vomit which also has to do has um, she was asking for it in Kitty Cat Massacre. That's my extreme horror series. Um, you know, extreme horror is is a very uh, cool niche. A uh, lot of really great people oh, yeah. in the community. Um, uh, if 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 you uh, are a part of that, it's it's really awesome. And then after Savage Headhunters was my most recent book, Warrior Soul and Other Stories, a collection of my published short stories, which I'm here to talk about today. All right. So since you mentioned what brought you here, before we do that, we're gonna do a little bit of the fandom stuff. But have you sure. gotten any cool fan art since sure. you or cosplay since you started writing? Actually, I just got my first uh, piece of fan art. Um, it was by uh, uh, an old, an old uh, buddy of mine named Seth Matoyer. Um, when I lived in Hollywood, he he's uh, he's uh, he, he does a lot of stuff. He produces really low budget uh, horror movies, really cool movies. Um, I actually worked on uh, the set of I think at least one, maybe more. Um, if I remember right, that he produced. Uh, the, the one I worked on was um, Ballet of Blood, directed by Jared Masters. He's a really awesome exploitation filmmaker. Um, I was uh, on the set working on that. Uh, you know, I, I've got my MDB credit uh, for that, that and everything. Um, and I, I may have worked on some other movies. Yeah. 
remember, but he also does uh, music. He's in several heavy metal bands. He's got a record label, and he does a lot with uh, art, and he's experimenting with AI. So he did some fan art for Jungle Jitters. Um, you know, the three girls in that, they're called the Action Girls, and he did, uh, you know, a fan art portrait of, of the Action Girls, which he posted to Twitter uh, just a few days ago. And I think that was really, really cool of him. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, I'm, I'm really, uh, you know, great for him. I, I want to see more more fan art, to be honest. I mean, I was just blown away. I felt so good seeing that. I'd love to see more. But the thing, you mentioned cosplay, and the thing that I would love to see more than anything else is women cosplaying uh, uh, the characters in my book covers. Um, you know, I, I think that would just be fantastic. Like Ibu Gogo, Jungle Jitters, Five Maidens on the Pentagram, even even Warrior Soul and other stories. I know you're looking at a censored version of the cover right here, uh, all of you listening at home. But if you just click on the link, you'll see the actual cover. Um, love to see uh, women cosplay as my characters on my book cover. So this cover in particular illustrates a scene from the story Warrior Soul. Um, now this is about, uh, there's two girls, they're, they're Peace and Mel, and uh, very strange, they've been panhandling in Washington Square Park in Manhattan. And a very strange photographer has just lured them into his uh, studio. And, you know, on the guys that he wants to uh, take uh, a modeling shoot, photographs of them, do a modeling shoot. So he takes their picture and slowly he gets them out of their clothes until they're all both completely naked. <clears throat> and then, you know, he has a uh, camera that photographs models' souls. And what he really wants is a photograph. So, you know, they're, they're posing for him, they're naked. He takes out the camera, he, he snaps their picture, and poof, everything disappears. And they're transported into a... Uh, parallel universe, which, uh, you know, and they're very surprised and scared to get there. Uh, they're very frightened. And that's what uh, the, this cover uh, represents. That it's an illustration of that scene uh, for, from Warrior Souls. Okay. So has anybody asked for your autograph since you started writing? Um, yeah, once. Um, this was uh, pre-pandemic. Um, this was in 2019, and um, my first, uh, I, my, before I started self-publishing, uh, this uh, small press had published a uh, collection of my short stories up to that point. There was uh, six stories in that collection. Four of them are in Warrior Soul and other stories. The other two aren't. Uh, their alter ego was expanded to the novel Five Maidens on the Pentagram, and we might not have fire, but we sure as hell have fury is I, I re-edited it. I completely rewrote the entire thing. Um, it was like this like 20, maybe like 16,000 word story. I whittled it down to 5,500 words and made it a really tight action story because I thought the original was just very very lumbrous and, and just too big and, and, and too like wordy and, and didn't have like the right kind of action. So I, I cut it down to 5,500 words, completely rewrote the entire thing word for word. And it's now my uh, selection in Kursova magazine is publishing this really cool anthology called Son of Hercules. And uh, it's about the old Peplum um, sword and sorcery movies. <clears throat> if you like Italian cinema, uh, they're the Machiste movies. Okay. And 
Italy, and uh, it's based on that character Machiste and the Sons of Hercules from the American version. So I, I re-edited it and rewrote it word for word into my Machiste story called um, Machiste in the Land of the Snakes. And uh, that, that's going to be coming very soon from Kursova. Um, the Kickstarter for that is coming uh, soon. I know it's not it's not up yet. We're, we're talking in uh, the middle of March right now. But by the time this podcast is released, maybe uh, you'll be hearing about that Kickstarter. I, I don't know. Maybe it's going to come later in the year. Um, but uh, you know th that's coming very soon, and I'm very excited about that because it's going to be an awesome project with a lot of really awesome writers. I'm not even sure if I'm uh, <clears throat> really supposed to be talking about it yet, but I I'm just so excited about this project that I can't help it. I've got to I've got to talk about it because uh, the, the story that I got for it is just out of sight. It's an amazing story. This project has so many great writers, and I'm just totally excited for it. All right. So uh, finally, what would be the weirdest or funniest interaction with fans you've had since you started writing? Um, well, that would be, um, you know, very recently. Uh, so I got some older experiments in self-publishing. They were like before I learned how to self-publish. Like I didn't I didn't know how to do anything. Um, I didn't even know to hire an editor. I just thought like, oh, you, you edit yourself and, 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 you know, so, uh, and I didn't really know how to write the stories yet. I wasn't writing it at, you know, and I was writing short fiction, but I hadn't really learned how to write longer fiction yet, which is a different skill. So, you know, my, my first two self-published books are out of print and, um, you know, I got a lot of fans who collect my paperbacks. Um, they're, really popular my paperbacks a lot of times do better than my ebooks um and my ebooks sell very well but sometimes my paperbacks sell better just because people they really like to uh, collect my, my paperbacks i've also got you know books on other uh you know ebook only platforms and a lot of my ebook readers they'll buy the ebooks and then they'll want the paperback and they'll go to amazon or another store and get it so um you know he collects my paperbacks he's got every single j man from Wexel paperback he's read all my books he's reviewed them on uh, amazon um but you know i came a little uh late and he missed these two early books that were before i was anybody so he was begging me to republish these books just long enough for him to order the paperbacks. And, uh, you know, I kept on saying no. Like, this started about a year ago. And he started, he was asking me on Twitter. He was asking me just, you know, all different ways. And each time I said no. And finally, you know, Warrior Soul is about to come out. And, you know, he sent me a DM, you know, I'm really excited about your book. I really want to read these two books. Um, and they're out of print. I need to read all the J. Manfred Weixel books. So finally, you know, I felt, well, okay, he's, he's a really good fan. Um, you know, he's a really great guy. And so I'll do this for him. So I republished those two books. Because they're very on the download. I didn't tell anybody. And, uh, you know, I kept in touch with him via DM. Wrote him immediately. I got the message that those books went live. He ordered them. Now, the thing is, I had to keep them up until they shipped. Because if I'd unpublished them before they shipped, Amazon wouldn't ship them. I, I made sure that I learned all that by asking around in, uh, you know, all the self-publishing groups, like 20 books to 50K, to figure out, you know, how, how that would work. Wide for the win, too, I was there. And uh, so I learned asking those groups, you got to leave the book up. So I 
we publish the book, he orders it. And usually it takes like two or three days for a book to ship. Um, you know, I saw the spike in the in the sales rank. He told me he ordered it, but then like a day goes by, it doesn't ship. Two days, three days. I'm like, I'm starting to get really worried here. You know, because what if what if other people start ordering this book that these books that I really don't want commercially available? I'm, I'm getting a little I'm getting a little concerned. I'm sweating a little bit. Uh, like another day goes by. It took a whole week for those books to sh to ship, uh, and and you know I get the notice because that little gray line goes up on the old Amazon report, the payment comes in on your payment report, and he told me they shipped, but uh, it took a whole week uh, for those books to ship. And whoo, I, I was sweating there for a while. Um, I tell you, I was I was really getting nervous. But uh, so that that's probably my most uh, funniest um, interaction um, with, with, with my fans. All right. Well, that was a good introduction. And since we've mentioned what we're going to talk about today, Warrior Soul, before we do that, we're going to pause for a moment while we shamelessly shill for the man and uh, play this commercial. A thousand battlefields and a million wars. There is always a question. What do you do when all the chips are on the table? Do you run? Try to find salvation in the arms of an easy peace? Or do you stand and fight and send your enemies into whatever hole they crawled out of? On Deadly Ground, a heroic Last Stand anthology has ten stories addressing that question. Each character faces the impossible in different ways, but all will be tested before the day is done. Can they earn a heroic victory amongst the endless eternity of space, or are they doomed to fall into obscurity? So, thank you for sticking with us through that commercial interlude. Um, thank you to the sponsor. I hear he's a stand-up guy. Um, and uh, now we'll get back to it. So, before we get started, given the cover that we talked about was a little, shall we say, what rating would you give this collection of short stories? Oh, um, you know, it's it's really actually all over the place. Like some of the stories are pretty sexy. Uh, Warrior Soul is a pretty sexy story. Uh, Going Native is a pretty sexy story. Uh the Black Jewel is a pretty sexy story. Um, so, you know, a lot of the story is really sexy, but uh, you know, other others are family friendly, uh, like, uh, you know, the rainbow colored rock hopper that uh, was in the planetary anthology series. I thought I was writing it for Superversive Press. Uh, really, I was writing it for um, Tuscany Bay Press because they took that series over and, and published it. Uh, you know, that one is, uh, you know, it could be read by, by a family, uh, family friendly. And there's a couple other, the first two, the, the second story, Queen of the House, is a family-friendly story, too. And the first one uh, doesn't really have much sex or violence in it either. It just has uh, psychedelic drugs, um, which are also pretty taboo and not, not appropriate for kids. Um, so, uh, you know, some stories are inappropriate for kids. Others would be completely fine. But, you know, because I put them all together, uh, the collection as a whole is for adults. Um, you know, as far as the cover goes, um, you know, there's some authors who, who, you know, they're making their cover. They, they do something called market research, okay, where they say, okay, I'm writing in a genre. I'm going to go to Amazon and look at all of the different covers and the books in my genre, and I'm going to do a cover that's exactly like those. And I, I, I just, I think that's horrible. Because when, when they do that, all the covers wind up looking the same. And, and who wants to live in a world where everything looks
looks the same. You know, I, I don't want to live live in that kind of world. So when I'm making these books, you know, I'm thinking, what kind of world do I want to live in? And I want to live in a world where everything looks unique and different. Well, you know, that's the kind of world I, I want to live in too. And so, you know, I, I just do my, my book covers, you know, the way I want. I want to put naked women on my book covers. I'll put naked women on my book covers. Um, you know, I, th I think what they're doing is horrible, just making every everything look the same. I think everyone, you know, you need to look different. You need to develop your own, your own brand and, and your own voice and really stand out uh, because, if you're just like everybody else, then you're interchangeable with everybody else. And, and guess what? That means that you can you can easily be replaced by a machine with today's technology. But if you're going to be really original and unique, and you're going to write in your own voice and really, you know, speak from your heart and put what you want in that book cover instead of what other people tell you to put on the book cover. That's how you're going to stand out. That's how you're going to get ahead. And that's how you're going to, you're going to get the kind of career that I have where, uh, you know, everybody knows who I am. Um, maybe they, they, some of them love me, some of them hate me, but they know who I am. And when they see one of my book covers, they can recognize it as, as a J man. Wexel cover. Uh, strangers come up to me. They say, I see your book covers. I love them. Strangers come up to me. They say, I, I see your book covers. I hate them. But they all remember them. And that's the important thing. So you have 12 stories in this collection. Um, do you have a favorite? Uh, I, I'd say Warrior Soul is my favorite, uh, which is why I called the collection Warrior Soul and Other Stories and why I decided to uh, name the collection Warrior Soul. And, you know, that one originally appeared in the issue of Kursova uh, that had the lost Tarzan story. <coughs> it was volume two, issue one, and it had a story called Tarzan and the Mysterious She. It was a short story that was left unfinished by Edgar Rice Burroughs, but it was completed by an author named Michael Tierney with the uh, go-ahead, uh, with the blessing of the Burroughs estate. And uh, he finished it. It was published in the first issue of Volume 2 of Kursova. And I was very lucky to have Warrior Soul appear in the same issue as that Tarzan story. Uh, that was one of the highlights of my career. And I'm just, I'm, I'm extremely lucky that I, I was given that opportunity because a lot of people learned about me through that issue of Kursova. Um, you know, by that time I already had some longtime fans. A lot of people told me that this was my best story. And I, I still think it, it's it's up there. It's it's one of the best short stories. Um, it, it's uh, weird. It's got a weird tales, C.L. Moore vibe. Um, you know, when, when I wrote it, I was thinking um, Northwest Smith, uh, C.L. Moore's hero. I wanted to make a female equivalent. Um, so while he's this uh, smuggler who's daring and always gets in trouble with women, you know, I decided I'd, I'd make a woman who, you know, gets in trouble with, with men in order to, you know, kind of do a little bit of, uh, you know, gender swapping with, with that character. And, you know, I think it turned out great. I always wanted to turn this one into a series. And I never quite got around to it. Um, even when I wrote it, I wanted to. Uh, there's a second story calling, starring the same character. I mean, it's Peace. Uh, there's a second story in the collection called 
um, the Black Jewel, uh, starring the same character. I just never got around to really turning it into a series. So, you know, what I would need in order to do that is like hundreds of people just spontaneously saying, wow, uh, we love this uh, character piece. We want to see uh, a series of books about her, a novel about her. And, uh, you know, I totally sit down and write that. Um, but that's pretty much what, what I need in order to do that. But it's definitely my favorite uh, story in, in this book uh, for sure. Sure, and they're all good. Uh, they're all written at different. Um, they're all written between 2018 and 2022. Most of them were written 2018 to 2020, and I think two of them were written during the. Uh, no, more of them were. Some of them were written later, but most of them were. They were in between 2018 and 2022. Um, and, um, you know, so they, they really represent uh, my development as an author and just, you know, my, my formative years. And a lot of the ideas that went into my longer stories, can, can you can kind of find their roots in these stories. Um, for example, like Jungle Jitters, if you read Jungle Jitters and you read uh, Complicit in Their Bondage, which was originally published in the Planetary Earth Anthology from Superversive Press, you're gonna find a lot of the ideas I started to develop in Complicit in Their Bondage, I continue to develop in Jungle Jitters. So if you've read Jungle Jitters and you're kind of interested in like the genesis of those ideas, you can go back and you can look at uh, Complicit in, in Their Bondage and kind of find that. And, you know, same with Ibu Gogo. It sounds kind of weird. A lot of ideas that originally, that, that, that appear in Ibu Gogo, a lot of them were really developed in like stories like Going Native. Uh, where it has to do with um, interspecies relations and mating and um, you know all that but like you know in going native like you'll see like the seed of the idea and when you read uh, Ibu Gogo you're going to see like you know how that idea developed and, and blossomed into like a full idea that, that was novel length instead of a short story. And I think, you know, you, you see that in a lot of parallels between my longer works and uh, my shorter ones that, that appear in Warrior Soul and other stories. So if you're a fan of my some of my longer works, definitely uh, check this collection out and, and read it. And you'll see like how a lot of my um, ideas uh, developed um, over time. And, and, you know, I can't believe I'm saying this because, you know, there's a lot of people who they'll go to like English class and they'll learn about like how a writer's ideas developed and they'll be like, no, that's BS. The writer doesn't know what they're doing. The teacher is extrapolating that from what the teacher interprets uh, from what he or she has read. But, you know, th those cynical students are wrong. Um, you know, do develop ideas over time. And you can see, you know, with me, ideas that appear in one story in one book are further developed in other stories in other books. Um, you know, for example, like, like I got like Not Far From Eden, which is based on, you know, old apocryphal texts, like the Book of Enoch and uh, the Book of Jubilees, and, and also, also the Bible, the Book of Genesis. And then, you know, the Caledonian Boar Hunt, which is, you know, developed from uh, uh, an old Greek myth uh, of the same name. And, 
you know, when I was adapting those stories, like when I was writing Not Far From Eden, I was I was really learning how to do, do those kind of adaptations. And then, you know, when I wrote uh, The Caledonian Boar Hunt, I kind of continued that. And then when I wrote uh, Savage Headhunters, uh, which came out in February of this year, uh, that's based on World War II, the Battle of Guadalcanal, and a lot of old stories from that, and uh, old historical photographs of, of soldiers headhunting and, and and posing with Japanese skulls. And, you know, when, when I adapted those photographs and those old stories uh, from history, I took a lot of what I had learned from adapting myths. And, uh, I used that in order to write historical fiction. So I almost kind of created a new genre. One, one, one blogger said I created a new genre called extreme historical fiction with Savage Headhunters because it's really extreme horror, but it's also historical fiction. But I also was thinking about the history as myth and how World War II is really the foundational myth of, of the modern era, but it's also an era which, because of geopolitical you know, reasons, is, is coming to an end, and, and we don't know what the next era is going to be. I, I can't predict that, and who knows? Maybe maybe the modern era won't come to an end, and all the uh, all the uh, people who are trying to you know, predict things are wrong, but um, maybe it'll just continue for another 50, 60, 100 years. Uh, but, you know, I was really thinking about its foundations and how like Genesis is a foundational myth that I based Eden on and the Caledonian Borhound is a foundational myth that I based that book on. So I was thinking of World War II as a foundational myth and I wrote that. And because I'm a sub subversive writer, I was thinking, well, how can I, how can I undermine that myth? <clears throat> and how can I make it meaningful to people today living at a time when uh, the modern era might be coming to an end and transitioning into whatever the uh, next era is uh, going to be. Okay. So you talked about your favorite story. Do you have a favorite main character of all the 12 stories in this collection? Yeah, I would say my favorite main character is the narrator of um, of Going Native. Um, he's uh, just graduated high school, and his parents have bought him a, uh, a tour, a galactic tour. Uh, so he's he's on a on a, on a tour ship, uh, touring all the different planets, and you know he's supposed to be seeing all the museums, all the education sites, but you know he's at a resort planet, and he wants to stay there. He meets a native woman. And, uh, you know, he's really excited to hook up with this Native woman, but he hasn't really thought about the consequences. He knows what they are because he knows that uh, interspecies relationships can be dangerous. He learns in school that interspecies sex can be dangerous, so he knows it, but he, he doesn't care about all those warnings. You know, he's very young. He just wants to go ahead and do it. He does, and he suffers some consequences because of that. So, you know, it's it's really, it's a, it's a lot of things in there, but you know, I just like that, you know, he's young. He thinks that there's no consequences or that they don't apply to him, and then he goes, he does it, he learns what they are, and he learns lesson um you know jd cowan he called that book a uh, psa against sex with aliens when he reviewed it on his blog uh he reviewed that story when it first appeared in Crusova magazine volume one issue eight <clears throat> and uh 
you know, and, and that that's really what, what it is. Um, I was actually had that in mind. I was going to originally make it a lot more on the nose as a PSA, but I, I took a lot of the on the nose stuff out in order to make it more like a fictional story. But even so, he, he, he picked up on that. And uh, I was really uh, impressed uh, with his... Uh, analytical skills when uh, when he did um so that that that's my favorite character the narrator from uh warrior soul i mean from going native so what would your 30 second elevator pitch for this collection be oh wow and you know an elevator pitch for a series of short stories is kind of hard because like you know I, I lived in hollywood for 10 years and an elevator pitch is the plot you know the elevator pitch is like this is a story about a blank character who must do blank or else blank will happen the first blank is an adjective uh the second blank is what the character has to do and the third blank is the horrible thing that will happen if the character doesn't do it so for like five maidens on the pentagram you know that's really easy um this is a story about a completely sane mental patient named Jonah with disassociative identity disorders. When he learns that his doctor is going is sacrificing women to Satan, um, he no one will believe him because he's a mental patient. So he goes undercover as his alter ego in order to uncover his doctor's uh, plan. Like that, that would be the elevator pitch to, to um, Five Maidens on the Pentagram. But, you know, for a short story collection, um, I guess I'd have to talk about, um, you know, about later. Like I'd have to say, this is a story about, uh, or, you know, this is a collection of stories that have appeared in pulp magazines. They run, they range from action and adventure to horror, to science fiction, to fantasy. A lot of them are really funny. Some of them are scary and disturbing. Some of them are really sexy. Um, some of them are just fun. Um, all of them are fun. So if you want to read like a really just fun collection of stories, just a variety of short, short stories that showcases uh, <clears throat> me and uh, my style and, uh, you know, everything that I wrote that helped uh, shape me into uh, the writer that I am today. And you want to trace, you know what I did in the story, this book that I think is really interesting is put the stories in the opposite order of which they were originally published. So you start with my most recent published short story, September 2022, and then you go backwards to my first published short story in April of 2018. So I put them in the reverse order of, of, of how they were published. And I thought in that way, it would be really fun for people to go and follow my development as a writer backwards to start with like my recent story and then go back to like my first published short story. I thought that was a really neat idea and I thought it would be fun for, for readers to, to follow my development in reverse. And I also think, uh, you know, in the future when I'm read by uh, scholars who are trying to understand, uh, you know, my work and are trying to really get a picture of what uh, this era through reading my fiction. I think, you know, some of them are going to notice that and are going to really appreciate it and are, are going to think it's a lot of fun. So, uh, you know, maybe, uh, I don't know how long these podcasts are going to last. Uh, you know, like all those early blogs from the early 2000s, like they're gone. 
like all that history from the internet, like, you know, people thought it was going to live forever and it developed and shaped the world that we live in today. Like it's all gone. Those blogs are gone and they're irretrievable. Um, And we don't know if that's going to happen today. There's other like total blind spots in history, like uh, early broadcast television. None of it exists. None of the early because they didn't record it uh, at first. They just let the signals go out into outer space. So like light years away, uh, like uh, there's signals from like the early, early broadcast TV. Maybe if we ever learn to travel faster than the speed of light, we can get them and send them back. But other than that, that stuff is lost. And even like the DuPont channel was the only channel to record uh, its television during that era. And they put all the recordings in a warehouse in in Manhattan, I think. Or maybe maybe not Manhattan. Maybe it was like one of the boroughs. But they, they put all that those recordings in a warehouse. Then the 1970s, they decided it was too expensive to store all those recordings. They dumped them in the East River, destroying the only record of television from that era that exists. Uh, at those, so the first science fiction show is gone. The first soap, televised soap opera is gone. The first mystery show is gone. It's all disappeared. All that history has completely vanished. Uh, and we have no way of knowing about it. And the reason we don't know about it is because it's it's gone. It's it's vanished. So uh, we never know what's going to last. And, you know, this podcast, <clears throat> it could last like a thousand years. And a thousand years from now, academics or archaeologists, they might want to find out what kind of fiction people were talking about. Or, you know, J. Manfred Weichsel, uh, you know, little fragments of his stories might exist here or there. Or even a couple entire books. And they might want to learn what he was talking about. They might might listen to this. Or it might just vanish. It might just go poof. And like, you know, 10, 10 years from now, just like, or 20 years from now, just like all those old blogs, you know, that this podcast could gone, be gone. YouTube could be gone. All the podcasts could be gone. And all of Amazon's uh, records could 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 just vanish. My paperback books could uh, disintegrate. It could all be lost. Or people could consider it important and uh, they could save it. Like those uh, DuPont video cassettes or whatever they used to record media on it. In like, you know, at that time, they, they didn't consider that important. So they dumped it in the East River. If that stuff was around like during the DVD era or even the VHS era, it'd be worth hundreds of millions, maybe billions of dollars. People would pay to put that stuff out. Uh, even today during streaming, um, you know, th- there, there'd be streaming services that would uh, be streaming that stuff. But uh in the 70s, they didn't have home media. They didn't have streaming. There's no way to monetize it. They didn't consider it historically important, so they just dumped it. Uh, you know, so attitudes about these things, they change over time. And what people value in the 70s is not what people value in the 90s or 2000s. And what people uh, value or not in the 2000s, it's not what people value today. Like people today, a lot of people are dying to learn that that those early uh, blogs and, you know, just the archaeology and the history of the internet, but it's it's just vanished. It's, it's just gone. It's been replaced by other formats and, 
you know, those people that post those websites, I mean, the websites are gone because, you know, people have to pay a monthly hosting fee. They stop updating their website and they say, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to pay this anymore. And the website goes away and the domain gets sold to somebody else. So all that, all those websites from the early 2000s, are, you know, that, that shaped uh, the culture that we live in today, we have no idea what they look like. We just don't know. We, we have memories, but memories are imperfect. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're gone forever. What was the question? Okay, that was deep. That's was actually, <laughs> that was actually the concern when we were in Iraq. There were some historians trying to get people to give them access to their, um, to their emails because in the past we studied war because we could read the correspondence that came home mm -hmm. and came to the troops in the theater and we could at some level like understand the plight of the average the average Joe, but in the age of the internet, when everyone was sending their contacts home via you know email or they were calling home, like there wasn't as much of a recording from the from the troop level. So that is a concern. But getting it back to your writing, um, Wait, hold on. you've I'm sorry, but you just mentioned, uh, you know, Iraq. I, dude, I should have mentioned, uh, you know, Savage Headhunters is about war correspondence during World War II. Um, it's based on actual war photographs. Uh, there was some, uh, like, like uh, the soldiers uh, in, in the Japanese theater of World War II and the Pacific Islands, they did a lot of headhunting. They posed with Japanese skulls uh, for photographs. And these photographs appeared in Life magazine. Uh, they were very popular. People like to look at them. So uh, the story follows a war correspondent in World War II, uh, you know, photographing American soldiers with uh, Japanese skulls uh, to be photographed in Life magazine for the entertainment of troops back home. Uh, but there's like a frame narrative to my Tales to Make You Vomit series. And at the end of the frame narrative, I compare that to um, Abu and, uh, you know, all those photographs that came out and people's reactions to those photographs compared to people's reactions to the uh, skull photographs. And so I totally wrote about, you know, um, uh, war correspondence. Uh, and I, I was studying all of that. Um, you know, it's a satire, so I was kind of studying it to, uh, you know, write a satirical novel. So it's not entirely historically accurate, but, uh, you know, I, I, there, there's some uh, verisimilitude uh, to that because, uh, you know, I put a lot of heavy research in, into into writing this book uh, about World War II, but also about, um, you know, war, war correspondence. Yeah, sorry okay. for... So... No, you're absolutely okay. So you did mention that you had um, alien creatures and magical creatures in your in your fantasy and sci-fi. So how do you go about creating them? Do you let your nightmares inspire you? Do you draw on Mother Nature, uh, folklore and myth? Obviously, you've mentioned some of the folklore and myth, but as a general rule, when you're writing, what is your inspiration for the uh, for the fantastical beings? You know, in in my short stories. The, the, the beings are mostly in these stories alien, um, and I develop them uh, the way any um, science fiction writer, uh, you know, develops anything, which is, you know, I ask, like, questions like, what if? Um, and I create, like, you know, certain con conditions, whether they're physical or uh, cultural, uh, that would... Uh, you know, create such creatures. Um, you know, for example, uh, the rainbow-colored rockhopper uh, is based is set in the asteroid belts uh, uh, at the edge of the solar system around where Pluto is. Uh, but 
in in the story there's an atmosphere belt uh, around where the uh, asteroid belt is and there's these rabbits called rock hoppers that hop from asteroid to asteroid and they eat the asteroid grass there so I imagine like, you know, what would a creature need? And I gave them like really strong, like rabbit-like legs and <clears throat> big ears to hear with the sonar, to hear what bounces off things. And I based it on the old, uh, you know, fur trappers, like uh, the mountain man. I based the main character on like, you know, the mountain man stories from the uh, old American and Canadian, uh, you know, old stories about the fur trappers. And I, I made kind of a comedic story. It's also based on like Elmer Fudd and Bugs Bunny and everything. Um, but... <clears throat> I had him hunting the, the rock hopper across the asteroid. And, you know, I made rules for the world, and then I made the rock hopper to kind of fit within those rules. But then, like, on another uh, note, um, there, I got a story called, um, called, uh, uh, let me look at my paper really quick and see what my story is called. It's called Aid and Comfort. And, um, you know, th this is about an alien species that's the enemy of humanity. Their, their species invaded humans. We fought them off. And now there's some of them still living on Earth. And you're not allowed to provide them with aid and comfort because they're the enemy. So um, I kind of developed this like th this really liberal guy who takes in the alien species because he's just, you know, a real bleeding heart. And he just assumes the alien is going to behave like a human. But the problem is they have a very different ritual involving um, on, on, on a YouTube show. I, I can't say I'm, I'm going number two. I'm going to the bathroom. They have very different rituals involving that. And so the alien, you know, does it in, in the wrong way that disgusts the human family that took him in. And the human family struggles to teach the alien how to go to the bathroom like a human being does. The alien's resistant and doesn't want to learn. And then it has a little bit of a twist ending. So, you know, in terms of that, I was thinking about sociology and I was thinking about like how humans view alien species and how the humans would view the aliens. Uh, you know, bathroom habits, but also how the alien would view the humans and the human attempts to make the alien go to use a bathroom like a human does. Um, so, you know, I was thinking about like, like I love a lot of the old sociological science fiction and that's what this was. So this is really a sci-fi collection, like um, Tripping Allergist. Yeah, they're, they're almost all sci-fi and um you know even the ones that aren't that are more like uh fantasy or more like weird sci-fi fantasy so um you know i was really uh thinking like a science fiction or you know i kind of stopped writing science fiction during the pandemic uh because i just kind of stopped uh being able to envision a future uh, dur during those years, like everything was just kind of moving at once and everything just seemed like the present to me. So during the pandemic, I, I really started looking to the past and to uh, myth and history in order to uh, write. Uh, but right now, you know, this is all over. It's all behind. Like my last story was World War II and I was, I was looking at history. I I'm in the mood to write another science fiction. I want to look to the future again.
So I'm, I'm pretty sure, I, I don't know what my next story is going to be. I just published this book a week ago, and I don't know what my next book is going to be. But I'm really thinking of going back to fiction and writing another sci-fi story. Because you know, I really do love these uh, sci-fi stories that I wrote. <clears throat> and I really do want to... Um, you know, write another one. So I, I might have to transition back to uh, sci-fi. Okay. So clearly this interview is winding down, but before we wrap this up, was there anything about Warrior Soul and other stories that we didn't ask? Hi. Um, you know, I, I don't know. Um, you know, if there is, I can't uh, remember it. Um, you know, if, if you're thinking of getting it, I, I'd I'd order the paperback now because, to be honest, I'm not I'm not sure how long Amazon's gonna let me have it up with that cover. Um, you know, it's not published everywhere. My books are usually wide; they're usually published everywhere. This one, it didn't make it to Kobo, so you can't find it on Kobo. Uh, you can't find it on uh, Ritukan. They own Kobo. You can't find it on their other sites. Um, but, you know, Kobo is like, you know, it's it's uh, not an American company. It's half Japanese, half Canadian. And I think, you know, that's why, because it's international. It has different uh, decency standards than, uh, you know, the, the American ones do. Um, but, you know, you can still find it on uh, Amazon. But you can't find my paperback distributor. Oh, wouldn't paperback out to uh, all the, the regular stores I send it to. So the paperback is just on Amazon right now. That That's it. Um, so, you know, I, I'd order this paperback while Amazon still lets you because I, I wasn't 100% sure I'd get away with this cover, to be honest. I'm kind of surprised I did. I mean, I just figured uh, Carpe Diem, you only live once. Uh, and I decided to, uh, you know, put, put, put this out. I've always wanted to put tits in my cover. Um, never had the nerve to. And I figured, you know, uh, it's it's now or never. You know, you got this uh, book coming out. You're not going to do it now. You're never going to do it. So uh, I just said, you know, sometimes you got to do it. You know, uh, seize the day. And so I did it. Uh, but, you know, I, I get this book. It might be a collector's item uh, one of these days. Um, and it's also just a really fantastic collection of stories that I think people are going to really enjoy and having a, have a lot of fun reading. Um, you know, you, you've all heard of Kursova Magazine. Uh, this has all five of my published uh, stories in Kursova. Um, you'll remember the Planetary Anthology series. Uh, this is both of the stories that appeared in, in that series from Superverse Press, Oskin Bay Press, uh, owned by uh, Richard Paolinelli. And uh, you know, and and those those tusk those planetary books are out of print. And every other book or anthology that these stories are in, other than Kursova, is out of print. Um, I think, except for uh, well, there's a few that aren't. Most of them are out of print. So uh, you know, this is the only place you're going to find most of these stories. So uh, you know, I, I guess uh, I really hope that you you buy this book, you check it out. And I've got ten books out. So uh, I hope you give them all a chance. Um, you know, also uh, give me a follow. Um, my Substack is a great place to follow because uh, you know I, I only I write like a newsletter 
you know, every once in a, once a month, maybe twice a month. Uh, so you don't get bombarded with stuff from me. You know, you just I just write like here's what I got going on, here's what I'm working on, here's what I have coming up. Uh, you know, it's a great way to keep in touch with my work without, you know, with with, with social media you can get a little bombarded. Um, you know, I follow people on Facebook, Twitter, and and it can be a little bit much. But with the Substack newsletter model, it's not quite so intense. So I like that. But I also hope you'll follow me on Twitter, follow me on Facebook. Uh, you know, I'm pretty low key. Um, I don't I'm a troll. I don't get into flame wars. I, uh, you know, I stay away from all that stuff. I don't shove politics down people's throat. I don't shove my opinions on on anything down people's throat. I have them. I have opinions. I just don't think that uh, you know. I don't like it when people do. People, people put a lot of negativity into the world on social media. I don't want to contribute to that, so I don't. Um, so, you know, I'm pretty low-key on Facebook, pretty low-key on Twitter. You got the links there. Uh, pretty low-key on Substack. You know, you can follow me. There's going to be minimal risk uh, of me turning out to be a crazy person because I'm not. I'm not a crazy person, uh, and I'm not like one of those attention whores uh, that you see. So you can follow me. No risk. And if you don't like it, if you if you think I, I for any reason, you can always unfollow. You can always unfollow that Substack. But uh, you know, I hope you'll give me a chance on uh, you know all, all those uh, all those sites, and I hope you'll you'll give my books a chance too. Um, Where your soul and other stories just came out March sixteenth. Savage Hedgehunters came out February sixteenth, and uh, you know, that's part of my Tales to Make You Vomit series that also includes. She was asking for it and Kitty Cat Massacre. Those are extreme horror books. Do not read them unless you have a very strong stomach. I'm especially the first two. Asking for Kitty Cat Massacre. I go all the way on those two books. If you like gore, check it out. If not, uh, well, all my books, a lot of my books have gore. But uh, not not like those, not like you get massacred, not like she was asking for. Those books, those books go really far. Okay, and uh, because he gave all of his social media links, I will go a little bit out of order. So it seems a little wonky, dear listener, dear viewer. But before we let you go, we have to harken back to our founding. Um, mantra so please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms your reviews help the right readers find the right book so do your part people and uh since we're going all out of order now we will uh get back to the regularly scheduled program and i will tell you since he told you where he can be found you can find us on twitter at twitter.com backslash sf underscore fantasy or yeah twitter.com backslash sf underscore fantasy underscore show Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. Again, blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. We have a Facebook group where all the shenanigans happen over at facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. Again, backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. We have a Facebook page where all the cool things happen and book reviews are posted and all the cool things, but it uh, doesn't have a dedicated URL. But you can help us do that by liking, following, and doing all the things over on our Facebook page. So just type into the search bar on Facebook for Blasters and Blades uh, podcast, and you will find the page. 
We have a website at anchor.fm backslash blasters tacky and tack blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades. Where for as little as 99 cents a month, you can help keep the lights on. These shows are not free to produce. So we appreciate your dedication to keeping us on the air and your contributions help. You can support the show more directly at buymeacoffee.com backslash author JR Hanley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Uh, be sure to put in the comment section that's for the podcast, and I will keep my co-hosts, Doc Saska and Nick Garber, duly caffeinated. They will drink until their liver explodes, and if they were here, they would say they're not a quitter. But um, with that being said, thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garber and Doc Saska, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week where we'll indulge our love, nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom. So, uh, uh, Manifred, thank you for coming onto the show. We appreciate your uh, your visiting again. Hey, you're welcome. It was a lot of fun being on the show again. I really enjoy uh, you know being on here. So, thank you so much uh, for having me. And to everybody uh, back home, uh, thank you for listening too. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for reading. And uh, as uh, Jr. Handley said, uh, thank you for reviewing too. Um, you know all that. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it so much. Every time somebody buys one of my books, I appreciate it. Every time somebody reviews one of my books on their blog or on Amazon or on Goodreads or on another site. I appreciate it every time somebody tweets about one of my books or even retweets uh, one of my tweets about my books. Um, all of that helps me out so tremendously. I, I appreciate it every time somebody mentions one of my books on Facebook. So, um, you know, you know, just thank you so much to everybody out there. Uh, you know, you're all just wonderful people, and, and I'm so glad uh, to have you in my in my in my universe and in my circle. And uh, you know, you know, all of that. So, uh, you know, thank you. All right, thank you, people, and uh, until.